Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. It's cold. Yes, it is. I tell you, no, it, this is the first good snowstorm I think we've really had all year. Like, even though it's not like, it wasn't like a ton of snow at once, there's a little bit of snow like over time, like over three days. And so it felt yeah. like a, it felt like a blizzard or something, even though it wasn't even that bad. Yeah. The plows have been pretty busy the past couple of days. And, you know, it seems like we're always talking about how cold it is here, but it's true. <laughs> Returning from California, it hit yeah. particularly hard. Going from like the 70s to like eight below zero. Yeah. The last time we were talking to you guys, uh, we were talking to you from sunny California in uh, the the NAM show. And that was that was lovely uh, seeing so many fun instruments and, and stuff like that. And now we're back oh, home yeah. and uh, shoveling snow. And sad. But that it's, <laughs> it's not too sad because we're still writing songs and we're getting our new album ready and we're preparing uh, to release that album in Austin this year during South by Southwest. Yeah, can't wait. Super excited about that. Right. So in less than, you know, in just a month, we're going to be uh, enjoying the warm Texas temperature, like a little spring break with some new music. Definitely. But Mike, did I tell you what happened when I was in Los Angeles? No. After you left. Okay, what happened? Just the craziest thing. It was Monday, the day of the podcast coming out. Yeah. And uh, so I went to a coffee shop, as I do, to edit. Okay. <laughs> and... You know, I used Yelp to try to find a, a coffee shop that has Wi-Fi, which I mean, I guess they all do now, but yeah, pretty much. Sometimes they don't. So I found this coffee shop called Coffee for Sasquatch. Oh, so like so a big, naturally a big I had to go. coffee shop. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty was, cool. Uh, yeah, they had different themed beverages and everything. You know, they had like a cryptid chai and stuff like that. It was great. But I walk in and I see this face that seems really familiar, mm-hmm. and Believe it or not, it was actually one of the guests from our show. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. Like in Los Angeles, what are the odds? I met Ryan Sprague. Right. A guest from, from our show. Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Yes, he's on Somewhere in the Skies podcast. He has a book, Somewhere in the Skies. Uh, Ryan's a nice guy, friend of the show. And it's funny that uh, you just randomly ran into him I at mean, a coffee of shop. all the people in Los Angeles and all the coffee shops, what are the odds of that? That's, that's why this universe is amazing friends and you can hear his episode actually is uh othersidepodcast.com slash 124 but just a special shout out to ryan because that was really cool to meet him face to face in person and sounds like he's got some cool stuff going on out there so we'll have to follow up with him again soon definitely you know i also ran into a former podcast guest randomly at the nam show and he was waiting in line martin blasick we interviewed him and natasha blasick we talked about her ufo experience um I just randomly walked into Martin as he was waiting in line to get in to the convention center. And I'm like, hey, Martin, how you That's doing? beyond bizarre. Yeah. So we had two random, I mean, both those guys live in Los Angeles, so that's not too random. And Nam, you know, those musicians. Oh, but I mean, Los, how many people are in this? Right, city? right. There's Come millions on. of people. And we randomly run into two podcast guests in separate, you know, locations. I just find that totally crazy. Statistically very improbable. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of kismet going on. Uh, with that. Crazy. So very, very random encounters, like encounters of wandering monsters. And um, <laughs> so, you know, 
Speaking of Dungeons and Dragons, our friend who introduced us to the guest we have on today yes. has her own Dungeons and Dragons podcast, doesn't she? Yeah, she is on Total Party Kill, mm-hmm. which is a podcast where a bunch of friends play Dungeons and Dragons on the internet for your amusement. Okay. So you, <laughs> so you can watch them live on YouTube and it's it's pretty, uh, if, if you're into Dungeons and Dragons or maybe even if you're not and you're curious about it. Yes. But let's not forget, Erica is on a very popular podcast, uh, Doctor Who podcast. Yes, Verity. Verity. Which is uh, like the, like a bunch of women hang around and talk about Doctor Who. It's like a, like a like feminist Doctor Who named after Verity Lambert, the first producer of uh, Doctor Who. That's right. And I'm drinking out of my Verity water yeah. cup right now. So, so you even have some Verity totally. merch. So that's uh, no, as a friend, Erica, who actually was one of my first friends that I met when I was in grade school. Uh-huh. And we bonded over our shared love of Doctor Who. And she was my roommate in college and for several years after college. Yeah. So thank you, Erica, for introducing Thanks, us e. to this next guest. And she knows the next guest because they meet at Doctor Who conventions and they hang out. And I'm totally geeked out about the next guest because I've been reading his stuff for, you know, 25 years. That's so exciting. Right. And the fact is that he knows so much about UFO lore that if you guys are looking for a quick, like, 101 on all these different kinds of UFO mythology stuff, there's stuff in his comic book that I learned from reading it. And and it's really fantastic. And so I think we should get to talking to the wonderful Paul Cornell. I got to say, this is a special treat for me because um, I remember uh, reading one of this author's books in high school, and it was one of my first like post uh, original cancellation Doctor Who novels. And so it's really exciting to that. Twenty years later, we get to talk about paranormal stuff with the fantastic author and writer Paul Cornell. Paul, welcome to see you on the other side. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, absolutely. And so, Paul, you're speaking to us from the other side of the planet. Where are you right now? Well, I'm in the middle of the Cotswolds, where um, my wife is a vicar in a um, tiny uh, Cotswolds tiny in, in a Cotswolds market town. Oh, that's fun. Okay, so and and I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, where it's negative six today. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, we're freezing to death, but uh, that that's all right. That gives us time to stay inside and talk about weird stuff. So, Paul, for people that might just be hearing about you and hearing about your work, um, give us a quick summary of a couple of your uh, things you've worked on over the past few years. Well, um, I'm um, a novelist, comic writer, and television writer um, in science fiction and fantasy. Um, I'm... Uh, in the midst of a line of novellas for um, Tor.com, which are the Litchford novellas. Um, I've written quite a few comics in that time, including creator-owned properties like um, This Damned Band for uh, Dark Horse and um, a run on Vampirella and a John Pertwee Doctor Who comic for Titan. But um, most recently, and most relevant to your audience, um, I've written... um, for uh, IDW, a comic called Saucer State, which is a sequel to a comic I had out from Vertigo a few years back um, called Saucer Country. And um, they are comics that mix politics and um, uh, UFO mythology. And that's right. And so I got to say, I got both of the like the, the trade paperbacks or whatever this weekend. So the Saucer State has just been released, at least the, the full, the collected mm-hmm. version. You guys can check it and you'll see it in the show notes. We'll have links to it. And, you know, what I loved about it was that it's kind of a unified theory of all of the different uh, UFO and, and alien mythology 
that we've had, you know, in 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 popular culture for the past, you know, 70 years. And so when you were working on it, how did you get the idea about saucer country in the beginning? Well, um, I've been inured in the material of UFO mythology since I was a child. This is stuff I can I can reel names and places off the top of my head. And I've been fascinated to watch even during my lifetime how the mythology has changed and adapted and um, gone in different directions. And um, I'm also fascinated by American politics and the fact that the two things do run somewhat simultaneously. They do have influence on each other. They do interact. And I thought the Greys, the whole abduction mythos, has has been kind of mined to death and played out in popular culture. And it struck me that this whole field is a lot richer than that. And... Um, uh, I it's it's weird, isn't it? How monsters come and go. How how what we're scared of eventually becomes only what we mock. It's very cyclical, it seems. And I, I think we, when we got to the point of the greys being inflatables, and um, the standard image for aliens in children's stories, right. then we'd re- they'd really lost their bite. Um, apart from, of course, to the the people who still claim to be abducted by them, but. Um, uh, I just wanted to do something which, as you say, a unified uh, approach, which which took on board all of the delights of UFO mythology. And it occurred to me that specifically, one of the heartlands of that mythology in the States is uh, New Mexico. Absolutely. And I, I'm toured New Mexico visiting some of the, the places that were familiar from books I read under the blankets in my youth. And... Um, uh, I, I thought, well, if I'm writing about politics starting in New Mexico, that brings in the whole business of the border, and it brings in the the idea of immigration and the thought of aliens um, in terms of other human beings who are just on the other side of a border, right. as well as creatures from another planet. And um, well, that that's where I got my heroine from, um, Arcadia Alvarado, the um, governor of New Mexico who runs for the presidency and uh, is the um, daughter of an illegal immigrant. And um, I, it, there was just something that fitted between all these ideas and uh, made me pitch to vertigo um, what eventually became saucer country. And um, basically, she gets abducted, in inverted commas, on um, the eve of announcing she's going to run for president. And she, the whole series is an exploration of what that means and her trying to find out what an alien abduction means, what it is, whether it meant anything, whether it actually was a warning from aliens that they are soon to arrive, um, or if it was something more spiritual, or if it was something more complicated, or... What was it? And I, I'm pleased to say that, that, that you know, I'm, I've known what the answer is all along. And we're working toward that. Um, this is in, a re- in reaction to the X-Files, obviously. Right. Um, I, I want to to assure the audience that we know where we're going and we're going to get <laughs> Right. In fact, we, we have one volume left, which is going to be out later this year, and that will complete it. And the, all answers will be forthcoming, and we will tie up every tiny little thing in a little bow. I was going to ask you about that, too, because what's interesting about this, and this is why I think our audience would really enjoy reading it, is because it's it's not cut and dried 
uh, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, or who even, you know, even in the context of good and bad guys, there's different groups who have different beliefs in what the aliens are or might be. And they're all kind of facing off against each other. And yeah. it, it, it's that it's that kind of thing that lets you bring in the different kind of theories and, the, you know, from people with the extraterrestrial hypothesis to to fairies. Yeah, we have the psychosocial hypothesis. We have um, the nuts and bolts people who I represent through a group called the Bluebirds, who are aero engineers, um, who have decided apparently that um, to that engineering is more important than science. That they've seen strange effects on airframes, which doesn't doesn't have theory to explain it, but they're going to go ahead and make them anyway. And they're exploring a body of work left behind by a founder who had apparently World War II era encounters with uh, UFOs. Um, we bring in the Hollywood stuff about, um, oh, uh, Serpo and uh, how much of UFO mythology was actually written as a body of fiction deliberately. Um we bring in, oh, there's everything from Pascagoula to the Hopkins Kellyville Goblins. Um, right. There's, there's stuff <laughs> to, I hadn't heard of, but there's like the. Uh, George Adamski and the contactees and uh, Orthon the Venusian. Oh, this is my, some of this is my favorite stuff. Back when um, UFO mythology was bright and shiny and optimistic right, right at the start. You know, and I think this might be a good time to talk a little bit about. Uh, what got you into this stuff in the first place? Like you talked about the, you know, the, the books you'd read under the covers as a kid. And um, and so much of, I mean, besides what happened in, in Rendlesham Forest, so much of UFO mythology is a very American, at least the present yeah. day. And so, you know, what led you to that fascination? And, you know, what, what got you into sci-fi and, and this stuff in the first place? Well, um, I realized just the other week that um, I actually read George Adamski and Desmond Leslie's Flying Saucers Have Landed out of my school library. Um, I was reading it on my school bus. What it was doing in there, I have no idea. Basically, I went to a, a really run-down private school that I've actually, um, uh, you know, it, it, it been thinking about how much of an influence it had on me more and more lately. And it was basically a run-down mansion with... And the school library was whatever I think whoever had previously owned the place left there, including some UFO books. But in my library, in my local library, there was no dividing line um, between science fiction and weird UFO stuff. It was all in the same bookcase. And, sure. and those things, when I was a child, had um, the same... There was no barrier between children and those things. Um, science fiction was regarded as a children's literature um, by librarians anyway. And so I was um, allowed to access this stuff, which I really shouldn't have been because some of it scared the living daylights out of me. Oh, yeah. The first time you read about Betty and Barney Hill, ah, you, know, yes. you hear about what she was, you know, you, they go through the hypnosis session and it's it's terrifying. It's like a Stephen King book. Yes. Well, especially the drawings. The, the drawing that Barney made of the alien has is is perhaps one of the central um, central pieces of art of American history. Um, <laughs> that it's influenced so much since, you know, it influenced the Carlo Rimbaldi's designs for Close Encounters, which went on to influence the Greys. Um, and it, Barney and Betty Hill fascinate me. 
I, I've I've had a short story published um, which regards them as perhaps, and my views on this in the world go back and forth, but every now and then I think perhaps they are the only human beings to have encountered actual extraterrestrials in an actual physical spaceship. Because either that, or they're two of the great myth-makers of all time, um, who are capable of plucking great American stories out of thin air and creating them <laughs> in an entirely new way. Right, because they set the template. Yeah, they set, they set a template for virtually everything since. And um, also, some of the details still have that ring of verisimilitude about them. Um, I, I do know that some of the things they report, as I, as I talk about in the comic, have been stripped away by the needs of mythology, like their aliens wore little caps, almost little biker suits. And uh, that just seems too silly for, for the mythology going on. We, we like our monsters not right. to come dressed as the village people. And, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's tremendous work on my behalf. I have to say, one thing I, I really want to to torpedo is the ridiculous idea that they were influenced by an Outer Limits episode that was on the previous week. I'm a huge Outer Limits fan. I always have been. And I'm a huge UFO buff and reader. And when I encountered that idea just in the last few years, nothing about that Outer Limits episode brought to mind the um, shape of the abduction narrative. Um, It's called the Bolero Shield. It's about a scientist who develops a force field. The aliens have wraparound eyes, and they don't remind me of the greys either. It's just the description wraparound eyes. Um, also, The Outer yeah. Limits, it's not a big rating show. But neither of them mentioned having seen it. And, you know, this is this is literally plucking at straws. You know, I hadn't heard that, but that's of course people are going to go back and they're going to be like, well, they just were influenced by, um, you know, they saw something on TV and then something crazy happened to them the next week, and, and that's how they used mm. to explain it. I liked, you know, you go right into like screen memories and stuff like that in, in in saucer country. And you talk about, and and this is something that is, I thought about a lot ever since I read communion as I was 12 or something. I lost so much sleep to that book. Um, I was at at (laughs) university and it just makes you look back over your life and think, where are the gaps? And of course, Whitley Stryber, horror novelist, knows absolutely how to play on this stuff. And, um... So of course we have gaps in memory because that's how memory works. You know, we, we we it makes you think of how how fragile a thing is your own sense of self made out of memory. Right. And for those of you who who don't know what we're talking about, so the, the idea of a screen memory is that you know it's almost you repress the actual memory and then you put something in its in its placeholder and and, and you remember something. So in communion, Whitley Strieber is remembering his abductions by aliens as like seeing mm. owls. And stuff, and so I, so I wasn't able to look at owls the same for you know what uh, I'd say up until yeah. like two years ago, and now and now I can look at an owl and be like, okay, I, wasn't I, I still, if encountering a small creature at night in the car on my own, get get a little shiver <laughs> and want to make sure the radio is still playing the same song a minute later, you know? Um, right. It's um, and we deal with that in the book with the the rabbits, of course. But um, Michael, one of mm. our characters, is rather haunted by by rabbits, that he seems to have been abducted by rabbits at certain points because these are screen memories. And you even bring in uh, yeah. the white rabbit, like the song. Because it's, it's used as, um, 
feed your head, Michael, is used as a, a, a phrase to um, to activate certain things in him. And so that's the, uh, of course, the, the famous Jefferson Airplane song. And he, you know, he does have a psychedelic experience in there. And uh, that's 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 not a spoiler because Michael's, of course, a character who has substance mm. abuse problems, and that also brings in his. Well, you know his reliability as a witness, mm. and and the no, the notion of the unreliable witness is really central to this. Um, one of the things we we want to indicate is that we're not, um, uh, we may not be very much nuts and bolts, but everything everything that's presented from the extraordinary, from the unknown, does mean something. It's all leading to a conclusion, and um, so. You know, various people have looked at uh, Saucer State and replied on Twitter, "Oh, so you've just solved what the Greys are in in the in the fiction?" And sort of, it didn't occur to me that's what I was doing as I went along. I didn't. I don't want to write them off at this point as entirely a um, a uh, uh, drug induced um, hallucination, or right, or well, rather, more of a. Uh, a cultural walk, walk across the desert experience, but uh, because because Michael encountered and learned real important things in that walk, and um, you know it's not just a matter of oh it's all made up. Well, and you know, and I think that's that's one of the cool things in that, especially if you are well versed in uh, UFO lore, you're going to come in there and you're going to recognize so many of the things right away, and you're like little things. Um, some of the quotes you use, and obviously you're, you're like Charles Fort butts his head in several times, and that's always fun. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm a great fan of Jeff, Jeffrey Creepell. Yes, and you know he was someone that I was slightly familiar with, but then when I was reading some of the quotes, I went back in and I read reread some of his articles this weekend too. Oh yes, um, he's incredibly valuable. I'll link to that in the show notes um, because I think it's something that that's totally worthwhile especially for people looking at these things from a modern perspective and some of the, I mean, some of the most sober writing on, uh, you know, otherworldly stuff, supernatural activity, psychic powers, the whole deal. Some of the most sober writings either been done, you know, it, it seems like it's all been done a hundred years ago or whatever. And now it's either going to be totally atheist or, or totally off the mm. wall. And I think that Je- Jeffrey Creepall, he brings in a very, not, I hate to say it like this, but like non-wacko yes. perspective. Yeah, no. <laughs> like he, he he comes across very straightforward and very like let's let's look at both things. Here. Well, he 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 is an academic and he treats he's a historian of religion, and it occurred to him he says that he um was he was writing about the history of a major religion and describing its miracles and its saints. And he wondered why on earth he couldn't describe modern mythologies, um, the paranormal, in the same way. But why he was giving a special status because of time to these these religions. And so he set about writing about the paranormal, um, as he would any other historical material, actually counting what the people who said who were there at the time say, and um, and not discounting their experience. He doesn't. In, entirely accept their experiences, but it's kind of like he doesn't feel that's very important. He's sure. just there to recount um, and uh, and link, and he he brings forth this wonderful sensation of um, a narrative in the world, which I really appreciate. 
and uh, he's got a lot in common with Jacques Vallée and people like that. Well, since we're talking a little bit about the history and you know Jacques Vallée and stuff, when I'm interested, you know, we were talking about things that may have got you into the paranormal in the first place, and you, you talked about how uh, you know Jeffrey Creeple he writes about people's experiences. Have you ever had your own? paranormal experience or anything like that that's maybe influenced some of your work or you're like i can't believe this happened to me i gotta you know this would be this would be perfect in, a, in one of my stories well uh, y- yes in 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 a in a different sense um i've talked to uh, since i started writing this comic i've talked to a few other comic writers um some of one of whom had a absolutely solid in a clear blue sky flying triangle experience um, when he was six or seven. Um, but uh, And another of whom had seen a uh, an extraordinary aerial display of something. But I've, I've not had anything like that. Um, I'm I'm an astronomer. I'm, I'm, I've been a, a junior astronomer when I was a kid and I, I own a telescope and I'm very familiar with the sky. And I keep hoping to see something up there that doesn't fit into my familiarity, but I have not as yet. Um, I've had some mystical experiences, let us say, some um, some religious experiences, some um, certainly some things that that make me feel that um, the the edges of reality are ill defined, that the the curtain between us and something else is is loosely loosely attached, <laughs> that it flaps sometimes. Um, I, 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 Mind you, I've always wanted to see a ghost, and I never have. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm like, I keep looking. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, this is my area of genuine skepticism. I'm not sure I believe in ghosts. I, I mean, maybe the stone tape theory, maybe some kind of memory of a place. Um, but the the whole idea of of what they're doing here, if they are sentient beings boggles the mind um it's it, it sort of attached to victorian notions of of heaven and it's kind of become outdated without anybody noticing because the stories are still so good you well, know um, if, if a if, if a story has a good punchline then it doesn't seem to matter to um uh people t- telling true life ghost stories whether or not it makes any sense you know I, well, I think that's a great point. And, you know, we, we've talked about the stone tape theory on the show multiple times. So you guys out there, if you're not quite familiar with that, that's the idea. And it actually comes from, a, you know, a, a show in the 1970s, like a, like a TV movie called The Stone Tape. Um, and it's the idea that somehow, like grooves on vinyl, uh, for those of you who've ever listened to a record, uh, so like grooves on vinyl, that experiences, things, uh, visions can be captured into stone or a wall or so you when you see a confederate soldier walking through your living room it's because somehow that was recorded by the you know when the confederate soldier actually walked through and somehow that's being replayed under certain conditions whether it's the right weather or electricity in the air or, or whatnot and that's the idea it's played like a like like a videotape made of stone I, I do wonder if maybe since we evolved in the electromagnetic field of Earth, maybe we can sense it and mark it. Maybe, right? Um, I mean, that's we're all we're all talking out of our butts on that one. Mm. <laughs> but it, but it's such a but I mean that kind of thing. 
you know, when you think if these are like a, like a sentient haunting, like the idea that a ghost is sitting there, like hanging out all day in your house or like at a place where it used to work, don't, why would it be stuck? You know, what, what would the ghost do all day? And, and also, how, how come Elizabeth the First is haunting, you know, like 20 different places? And what a, there's a, a novel of mine uh, in my Shadow Police series where um, they encounter a ghost bus. And there are meant to be ghost buses in London, for instance. And b- because they're, they're police officers, they take it apart, the, the idea. So, so, so what? This was a, a bad bus that had business left to do still on Earth that didn't go on to join the great choir in the sky? You know, what is this? <laughs> you know, um, when you have ghost objects, one gets away from the idea that this is a, a sentient thing, you know. Right. That is, and so, but the the idea that it's like you said, some kind of recording in the electromagnetic field or something that can be replayed, that it just seems to make, you know, it, that makes sense in a way that, I don't know, somebody who died here a thousand years ago still hanging out in your closet. Like, what? Mm. What are they? What, what have they been doing for a thousand years? Why do you got to keep walking around the same house if there's somewhere better to go? Although a pol- poltergeist seems to be a thing. Um, I have somewhat more credulity for that, but anyway, anyway, we're, we're getting off. We're getting off the the point of of, <laughs> of flying saucers, as those that wonderful right. description has it. Okay, and so what I like about uh, also, you know, saucer state. Even in the title, I mean, when you think about New Mexico, I mean, New Mexico is where the core of our um, modern UFO mythology comes from. Because it seems, you know, I mean, Roswell mm. is obviously the first, uh, you know, that that's that's the kick. When we think about the modern UFO narrative, that's the kickoff. Um, when you are working on integrating all bits of, you know, different UFO lore into saucer state and saucer country. What did you kind of start with or in your timeline of like, I'm going to, because br- you bring in stuff before Roswell and, and some cool stuff from the 19th century I'd even heard of. And um, like, where did you start your mythological timeline? Oh, well, um, as you say, we, we do talk about um, the, the a- mysterious aviators who fly over um, America in um, dirigibles just before, literally a couple of years before, it's actually possible for dirigibles to do that. And um, people encounter their occupants who are inventors from Europe who swear them to secrecy and who can't possibly have been there to do that in exactly the same way as they encounter aliens later on. What's funny about that, I wanted to bring it up, is because a weird bit of synchronicity. So on Saturday morning, I'm... uh, reading uh, Saucer State and Saucer Country and enjoying it with coffee or whatever. And then I, I check Facebook and my sister posts a picture from the 40 and times talking about the dirigibles going over Chicago in like the late 18, you know, like 1897 or something. And I'm like, I just read about this five minutes before. And then my sister posts something about it. I'm like, that's just the weirdest bit of synchronicity. Mm. Um, so I'm like that. So that's why. So where did you hear about that story? Well, this would have been in my childhood. I mean, um, I literally don't know where the origins of this for most of it are because I, I so heavily read up on the on the on the subject from when I was, you know, um, eight, nine, and ten. Um, so, and I, I've been until recently a subscriber, well, not a subscriber, but a reader of every single issue of Fourteen Times. So my my knowledge base has kept on being reinforced. Um, so I can speak speak this mythology in depth. Um, 
and all of it's come come splurging out in this comic. <laughs> right, and, and that's I think what makes it such a uh, you know fun to read. It's because when you're reading something, you know it, it's kind of like when Dan Aykroyd did the first Ghostbusters. He knew so much about all the old spiritualist stuff and you know the, the Society for Psychical Research and everything like that, and it, it all spills out when he's you know when it comes out and it makes it feel like a real labor yeah. of love and i think that saucer state and saucer country feel like feels like labor of love because even down to and this isn't a spoiler for anybody but this i particularly thought this was clever when you use the couple who are on the plaque from the uh pioneer of the voyager spacecraft the, the pioneer 10 spacecraft yes yeah, and that we all remember seeing that plaque. You know, and we saw it as a kid. We're like, "Oh, naked people!" But that you know, the thing is, you, you see, and then that that couple from the plaque are characters in the comic. Yeah, and um, the, the guy always has his hand raised, you know, um, because <laughs> right. th- they were kind of one of the spooky illustrations when I was a kid. Because of course, the thought that we might send things to. Uh, communications to aliens meant they might come to us so for me that was all wrapped up in it um it's um i just wanted to have them in the comic to um to to feature them as uh as as not to spoil anything but as uh, helpers who pop up to um to indicate to professor kid who is um our uh, academic who is is into this whole mythology um, what he should do next. They, they appear as his uh, fairy helpers. And the fairies show up too, no question. And I love that because up until a couple of years ago, I the idea of fairies, I'm like, come on, let's get out of here. Um, like, you know, it's all Arthur Conan Doyle and those, you know, silly photographs from the 1910s or 1920s, whatever. Uh, or the Cottington fairies, right, was the photograph? Cottingly. Cottingly. And, you know, so, but then as more and more people talked about the different fairy experiences, you even talk about the fairies, like the people have to eat the food and stuff that the fairies give them. There's an entire book, um, a Trojan feast about the various foodstuffs that strange creature and otherworldly creatures have given human beings over the years. And salt is something that does not feature heavily in these dishes where you'd expect it right. to and it, and with with salt being the thing that um you know in christian thought uh, in, well not in christian thought in 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 the cargo court christian thought sometimes leaves behind it salt is the the thing you throw to to get away from the devil right uh, and it was certainly uh, ufo occupants and fairies equally seem to uh, dislike it their cookery anyway. And it's funny you mentioned the Trojan Feast because we've had Josh Cutchin on the show before. Oh, wonderful. And he's actually, um, he went to the University of Wisconsin as well. And so that's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a, another funny coincidence, but I'm sure he'd be, de- to knowing that you read his book, I'm sure he would be delighted. He'd be like, oh, Paul <laughs> Cornell read my book, awesome. Well, I just thought it was such a, a specific and wonderful thought about what to write. Yeah, you know what? That book and also his book on the brimstone deceit, on the, the smell of sulfur that people get when yes, they have all yeah. these things, kind of influenced some of the way that I think about this particular, it, it kind of took me away from the nuts and bolts hypothesis a little bit. Um, and, and so for that, you know, in, in the in the saucer country, in saucer state, the, the nuts and bolts people, like you say, they're engineers. And every, you know, it's the, the reality of the physical, that these aliens coming or whoever is coming and whoever's doing this it's you know there's nothing mystical spiritual it's very 
it's just a different civilization with advanced technology, explainable by you know, very explainable by our current science and stuff. And, and wouldn't that be wouldn't that be awful? Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I, I don't think it makes any damn sense. It, it doesn't make any damn sense for them to to behave as they have, um, right? Because would you would you just show up, start abducting people, you know, terrify them, stick them, you know, all these horrible things, and drop them back off with with no explanation? It's it's why it's it's why the mythology gets so complicated about that stuff because it it actually feels the need to explain their behaviour. Um, you know they have to be in cahoots with the U.S. government who are hybrid breeding for some anyway, and, and and because it doesn't make any sense otherwise any any more than. Um, I mean, the contactees, um, Adamski and co, at least had um, the idea that they were trying to, the aliens were trying to warn us. Although I would think their warning would carry more weight if they landed on the White House lawn. But right. talking to some, you know, some weirdo farmer or whatever who nobody's going to believe if they talk to the president. The president's like, okay, I just talked to ET, and he says we need to cool it on the nuclear weapons. Okay. And it would be. You know, it might have some effect at that point, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> right. but, but um, it's it's still the, um, the 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 argument about it has always been that it would cost so much in 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 energy or whatever to go to another world that you'd want the inhabitants to know i don't i don't think that's necessarily true there are all sorts of reasons we can envisage why you might not want to make your presence widely known but then again if they their intent is not to to make their presence known why are they so bad at that um right <laughs> you know it's um <sighs> i do think maybe there's a core of something here um, that 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 maybe they were here for five minutes and then went again at some point. Um, I oddly that the point that point does not feel like 1947, where where everything feels explicable to me. Um, sure, uh, Barney and Betty Hill is my my point of maybe those guys came here and went went home again, having got lost. Um, they behave like people who are lost. Um, but, and they don't have any great mission for Barney and Betty. They just want to find out what kind of creatures they're dealing with. Right. It's not like, you know, Whitley Strieber has a whole, you know, by the end of, by the time he gets to the book Transformation, like the third in the communion series, it turns from like, I've been abducted and they've been studying us and things like that to, well, they're here to, you know, all of a sudden it's a spiritual new age mission by the time he gets to the third book. And it seems like, Okay, why didn't they talk to somebody in power? Why didn't they? You know, they could. There's a million people they can do rather than just grab the author of Wolfen. And 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 it must be said, I'm not really in a mood to listen to a message from my rapist. Um, I think that. Um, <laughs> that, that, that oh no, they're behaving nicely now. Um, but I, I I really don't want to write off the experiences of abductees, though. I I. I I actually do think they've been through something, um, and largely something awful. Um, I I don't think they're lying. Um, I think they 
I, I was going to say I think they may be mistaken, but that they're mistaken about uh, um, an experience which goes far beyond things which most of us have to deal with. So, you know, it's not like um, it's not like they've misidentified a balloon. You know. Right. Well, there's definitely some kind of trauma associated, and there, there's something that's going on. And I think one of your characters, Doctor Glass, and I also I was wondering if any of these characters are. I mean, I can see some of the real life analogs. Well, I wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> to underline some of that too much in case of lawsuits. You know, fair, fair enough. But I mean, reading through maybe your classes, maybe classes of people, groups of people that they represent examples of. You know. That's a good way to put it. But but your character, Dr. Glass, who's a, who's a hypnotist and a, and a therapist, I mean, he seems to put the alien abduction narrative into people's heads that he's trying to help. I, I believe that's a major problem about um, hypnotic regression therapy, as it's called. I think it's tremendously leading. I, I, I think that... Um, I, I think that those doing the regressing are largely after a specific narrative. I mean, that even started, I mean, even before the alien abductions, I mean, that was what was happening with the, you know, the the satanic ritual abuse and the, the satanic yep. panic in the U.S. in the 1980s. And Exactly. Exactly the same thing. Part and parcel of the same, you know, the, the same phenomenon, basically. And so I think the danger, like, is that is that all of these, a lot of these abduction narratives, they, they meet a template for... Um, you know, like, well, this happened to me, and then this happened to me, and then this happened to me. And you're like, well, did we get at the, did we get at the truth of it, or what you really remember, or because people get so suggestible, they, they remember things that I mean, one of we've talked about this on the show before that um, there's been research done by you know Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and University of Washington, and and in her stuff, she sets up fake memories for people. Yeah. I, I have read about some of these, and um, I, I think it's entirely possible, um, memory being what it is. Uh, I, I, I also think these are religious experiences, that they are um, altered states of reality experiences. And so, to some extent, um, what you remember is happening in them is metaphorical anyway. Um, and... Uh, it's a definitely. I, I think it's some sort of heightened state of consciousness. Um, what it describes, who knows? Um, I, I I read. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the writer. A book um, by a, a skeptical author who deliberately had hypnotic regression um, therapy and got planted in his head a solid memory of seeing a disc in his garden. Um, which he then remembered, uh, but he'd done that deliberately, um, uh, which is, is extraordinary and just shows the, I mean, so many stage performers know about the, uh, the, the fragility and the susceptibility of memory. Right. And, and I think they're playing on, on something which this effect, whatever ever it is, you know, is part and parcel of the same part of the brain, maybe. Um, that. Anyway, I'm 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 rambling now. <laughs> no, I'm with you, but but I think those things are important to consider because you you never want to take away from the idea that people had an experience, people saw something, and I collect ghost stories of different places in Wisconsin and Minnesota and make little tours out of them, mm. and so I'm always connect. I'm always you know hearing people's ghost stories, and I've never myself. I've seen a couple of weird things, you know, had a couple of mystical experiences like you were talking about, but never you know like a ghost has never walked in and said like, "Hi, I'm your grandfather." You know how you doing? You know, kind of, kind of thing. Like I've never had that kind of experience, and yeah. and I, I've, 
met very few people who have, or at least people that, you know, that I trust and mm. kind of thing. But I know people that said like, well, I, I did see a Confederate war soldier, like walk through my living room and I wasn't drinking or anything. Like I just saw that and I believe in ghosts. Don't know what they are. And so I collect these stories and you can never discount, you know, something, something happened to these people, mm. whether it, you know, what it is, we're, we're not sure. Um, I think it's the, it's the weird experiences, the, one that's, the ones that don't fit the narrative that I find most convincing. Um, like the, um, I think he was a, yes, a, a British policeman in the 1970s um, who was abducted by basically Gandalf and R2-D2. Um, <laughs> his abductee was a bearded man in a long robe and his little helper robot. And, uh, and that was a product. That was a, 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 a that was found through um, hypnotic regression therapy as well. And um, you cannot help but think that maybe he'd seen Star Wars, but still, everything else about his experience, it, it feels like he was abducted by the characters from Star Wars. <laughs> right, which is ridiculous. And that strikes me as as having the feeling of reality about it that you know that's that's obviously what he came out with and they wrote it down you know <laughs> right well you know and that kind of stuff is is extra interesting because then it get, it, it leads to you know what we were kind of getting to before is that if it's like you said nuts and bolts that almost seems like whereas something is when i was younger it, it's like the idea of poltergeist when i was younger the idea about a poltergeist is like no a poltergeist is just some telekinesis of a you know teenage girl kind of thing and when you hear the stories that don't match up to that or or things get exponentially weirder and and poltergeist mixed with fairy stories mixed with ufo encounters mixed with talking mongooses (laughs) right and you know and bigfoot sightings all that stuff put together you're thinking okay People are having some kind of experience, and they're just explaining it in the best way they can. I think maybe so. And the fact is that um, American mythology has been exported and has influenced this experience globally. Um, that um, how successful UFO mythology has been as a particular kind of American poetry—it's it's your best export. It's up there with jazz. <laughs> right. And it, it is also when you think about and you talk about this in, in saucer country, too. It's also even been used by our defense department and as a CIA as like psychological operations. And, you know, people see glimpses. There's, there's one part in uh, saucer country where Professor Kidd, he gets shown like glimpses of what happens with the men in black and what happens um with the reverse engineered technology and stuff. And and so they show them a little bit of it like that. And then that's very similar to, I think, like the Bob Lazar story or. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I deliberately, I was, I was factoring in a lot of Bob Lazar's testimony there. Um, it's shown and then it's taken away. Um, I heard a wonderful lecture by Jenny Randalls at a 14 times Unconvention convention about the possibility that the men in black is a, USAF and possibly RAF um, hazing tradition, that when this started in the 40s, 50s, that was just how a government spook was meant to look. And that was the car they drove. And they would show up and uh, kind of be bizarre 
and scary UFO witness because these guys had just nothing but contempt for for flying saucer witnesses and all they're doing is having a bit of fun they get the young guy back to the base and they all have a laugh about what they did and you know they keep the car in a garage somewhere and the tradition keeps going and and now it all seems really odd because it's been stuff that's culturally frozen since the 1950s i i was blown away by that i thought god that makes sense and uh, because because right the outfits the cars yeah, everything because a lot of a, a lot of many black encounters they sound like the many black are joking you know <laughs> they, they 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 some of the names and and speech they come out with it sounds like somebody is taking the mickey um uh, also uh there's I, I do think there's a genuine um, U.S. intelligence um, effort to uh, to pump up UFO mythology, to um, make it so that when people look up in the sky and see something they don't understand, they don't see a U-2 spy plane, they see a flying saucer. And um, Free- the Freedom of Information Act has really led along a lot of this stuff, Um the fact that early UFO groups are, are full of intelligence officers, and they don't seem to have been there to discredit or to monitor, but to encourage. And um, I, I, I'm, I, there's a wonderful book called Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington, um, which is not a sceptical book, but it's a very sa- sane book. Um, it's not a sceptical book because it actually includes Mark's own encounter with something he couldn't explain. But yeah, but cool. he encounters a figure very like the major um, in saucer country and saucer state, um, somebody who whose job seems to be to hang around being that guy who doesn't want who doesn't want to say anything about his experiences with UFOs in the military until he does, until um, he like a good con artist makes you feel that. You've got through his bull, his boulder dash, and you're going to see the real stuff. Right, you're in on it with him now. Yeah, and then in a very specific way, we'll show you something which you're you're meant to go off and talk about in the wider world. And um, Mark actually made a movie, a, a documentary out of Mirage Men, where this guy gets interviewed, and he's such a beautiful con artist. Um, he, he's he's basically <laughs> being interviewed, going, oh, I, I don't know what." What, you, what you're talking about, except, oh, oh, okay, well, there was just this. And he actually does it in the documentary, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then he makes, it, he makes it clear that, you know, oh, hey, I, I've got no military background, you know, I'm... I'm and... It, or have I is the thing which keeps coming through. And, you know, this is, this is, this is first-class intelligence work. This is... Um, uh, we're going to get into this in the final arc, so I don't want to 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 say too much. But we're going to have a whole is- issue devoted to the history of this. That really the the idea that the um, you know the CIA, the Defense Department, they want us to think that there's alien technology back there. They want the enemy to think that we have technology that I think you put your finger on it, right? Uh, and, and I think that's maybe why it's come back just in the last few months. Um, that uh, just recently there's been a slight resurgence in in UFO mythology in uh, that gun camera footage of something that couldn't be explained. Um, 
and various people inside the establishment talking about it again. Um, I I think maybe we're trying to scare we. Um, Donald Trump and I are not on the same side. Um, I, I, I think maybe the, the American intelligence community is trying to scare North Korea or China with this. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it was there to make the Russians think we had we had a crashed um, a crash flying saucer and we're going to use it. And that's the thing. Like, why is the New York Times running a, a huge story in December about a UFO investigation that it was only like twelve million dollars? It you know it's like the Defense Department's bathroom budget or whatever, and it gets something that we're talking about you know months or you know uh, six weeks later people are still like yeah well how about that New York Times story and it it's reintroduced the idea that yeah we're we're working on alien stuff and oh you know we haven't found anything and nothing for sure and I think that's a that's a good point like. Are we trying to scare the North Koreans? Are we trying to scare China, who might be a future, you know, competitor kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, the British were far more down to earth about this. They, the um, the Department of the Civil Service, the UFO desk, um, basically came to their conclusions very quickly and closed <laughs> down due to <laughs> due to lack of official interest. You know, and Nick Pope, hmm, when he was on that desk, he showed a lot less credulity than he does now. <laughs> Sure. And and you know, well, he still writes stuff. I mean, very regularly, um, and interviews and stuff like that. People still talk about that. And and I think even with this, uh, you know, people get a little bit of footage. And there was a, a I just ran into somebody who's like, if you're into this, you should check out the USS Nimitz from 2004. When I was in the Navy. That's all we could talk about. Something happened there, man. <laughs> I love, I love that. Um, uh, well, you may he may be just caught up in the mythos, or he may be one of these guys whose job is to say things like that, right? Because I'm, I'm sitting there like, what are you like a? Do I have my own deep throat? <laughs> but um, the other, um, I love the fact that the, um, you know, the Philadelphia experiment. Yes, that the veterans of that ship have an annual reunion, which is just, you know, a bunch of a bunch of old guys. <laughs> and, you know, anybody who from the um, paranormal community who showed up, they would tell them, of course not, stop being so stupid. <laughs> and they're right there every single year, you know. And um, uh, it, 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 I think also it's the way tales are told that um, – uh, when when we hear that that ship vanished from one shipyard and appeared in another, uh, the shipyards are s- uh, only a few hours sailing distance apart. It's not like from one side of the US to the other, you know? <laughs> right. But you know, So we talked about the Philadelphia experiment. That was a spe- experiment supposedly in that we were, you know, teleporting. Mm. Uh, an actual, you know, an actual ship could, you know, could blink in one place and I mean, blink out one place and, and, and blink in another. And this was done, this is World War II era. And I think one of the reasons that it also feels that, you know, people feel like it, it might be true is because when you think about the World War II era, the creation of the atomic bomb, like we created something that could destroy the planet. Like there was the technology went from you know, fearsome bombs and fire bombs and stuff to, you know, the end of civilization. Mm. So there was such a quantum leap in destructive technology. I think the, I think people are open to the idea that 
we could start doing magic stuff. Well, yeah, <laughs> like teleporting things, and-, and and that's why UFO mythology goes hand in hand with with the Atomic Age. You know, um, ni- nineteen forty seven is. Uh, you know, a, an extraordinary moment in human civilization, and that's when you know things really kick off and go into a different, different, you know, um, a different uh, league with with UFO mythology. Um, also, I love the fact that UFOs always seem to be just one step ahead of current human technology. It's like they, it's like they keep pace with us and stay just ahead. You know. Right, like like the technology to get from one star system to another wouldn't have like everything else should have dwarfed us by now. You yeah. know, like every once you've developed that technology, then everything you have should be like magic. And uh, like like in the medieval era, they arrive in ships, literal ships in the clouds, galleons. <laughs> <laughs> and so, right, and that's what makes you think that okay, guys, like maybe it's something like we're something is happening. But we're doing the best of our interpretation. Mm. I, I, I cannot imagine the Greys in a dirigible going, oh, this will fool them. <laughs> they'll, they'll think that's strange, but they'll be able to culturally recognize it. <laughs> well, um, Paul, I got to thank you for your time today. We didn't get to talk talking about Doctor Who. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. We have to say that for a, a different episode one when we go more in depth about Doctor Who. But I wanted to say thank you for uh, all your great work, Saucer Country and Saucer State. I can heartily recommend that to everybody uh, who listens to, to this program because I think they're really going to love it. I, I should just mention my wonderful artist, Ryan Kelly, um, who can draw both the normal and the extraordinary with equal veracity and is a huge part of both books. And it, now, if you guys haven't, obviously, comic books have evolved um, you know, from where we thought about them even you know, 20 years ago and stuff. But the thing is, like, when you talk about the art, art in comics is something, you know, when I think about the comic books I've read as a kid, like even the ones I thought had great art, and I would I'd read like Doctor Who comics, V comics, you know, any like a lot of TV tie-in stuff was the stuff I really enjoyed. Um, the art in comics now is exceptional, mm, mm. and and Ryan has a very uh, realistic style, which I really love. So uh, that you know, we gotta heartily recommend that because anybody that appreciates uh, UFO lore is gonna is gonna find something to enjoy. So Paul, thank you very much for your time today. You know, I'm sad we didn't even get to Doctor Who. Oh, like, I know. That's one of your favorite topics. I, I could talk about Doctor Who. But the thing is, is that this <laughs> this sets it up for him coming back. So now it's like, it's like, oh, we didn't get to talk about Doctor Who. Now you have to come back on our show and we can talk about Doctor Who. That, that sounds great. Because he wrote, uh, you know, two really popular or three really popular episodes. One is uh, Father's Day where Rose Tyler... Uh, you finally see her father for the first time. And the second is Human Nature and Family of Blood, which is based on his novel from the 1990s. And so, like, Human Nature is, like, people say it's the best 10th Doctor episode of all. So he, like, he, you know, so he's a big deal. I think he's a big deal. Very exciting. Yeah, anyway. I love it when people, like, you know, involved in the sci-fi genre also are into the uh, paranormal. Yeah, no, fun. he, I mean, he really knew his stuff. And so uh, make sure you check out the show notes and check out Paul Cornell's work because you're really going to enjoy Saucer State and Saucer Country. And we enjoyed using it as inspiration for our song this week. So like in the episode, um, we talked about this organization that talks about aliens as nuts and bolts and that <laughs> they're, and, you know, it's just, they're just regular, they're just yeah. developed on another planet. And they just develop technology and come on over and come in and say hi, kind of like your neighbor. 
or whatever. So it's a very physical explanation, a very materialist explanation, the, the most simple materialist explanation of the UFO phenomena. And we thought that was an interesting kind of metaphor. So we decided to use that for the song this week. So you can check out uh, our little sunspot ditty inspired by Saucer State, Nuts and Bolts. See the light, don't close your eyes. Fall asleep, you're paralyzed. Somewhere the dreams and memories mix. And our little friends are playing tricks. A violation of our sentience. Like the old egg sits on your chest. When they put you into program mode, don't think that you're a guest. Nuts and bolts and nuts and bolts and nuts and bolts and nuts and bolts and wet machines with lucid dreams. Are we just aware under the scenes? When you fill your head with magic beats, will we find out who's behind the scenes? Violation of our sentience, just like the for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. We're not done yet. No, we're not done until we talk <laughs> about our awesome Patreon community. And we want you guys to be part of that Patreon community because we love to get to know the people that enjoy seeing on the other side podcast. Wendy, where can they find more about our Patreon? Oh, they can find more at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we want to give a special shout out to Dr. Ned. Ah, Dr. Ned. Doc Ned is at the, uh, the, the Patreon level where we mention him every single week. So thank you, Ned, for all your support. We appreciate it. And thank you to all our Patreons for helping make See You on the Other Side podcast possible. And, uh, well, inspiring us to keep it going and make new music for you guys and new podcasts and keep exploring the other side. <laughs> yes and mark your calendars because our next hangout will be february 15th that's a thursday at seven o'clock central time can't wait to see everybody and catch up sounds good see you then bye